Good morning. Uh, I too would like to extend a, a heartfelt um, and grateful welcome to all of the uh, uh, students and families who are here. We are, we are so grateful that you're with us this morning. Uh, also, a quick announcement. Um, we've been talking about it, but Dr. Heath Garris is going to have a lunch table reserved today in the Great Hall uh, for anybody who'd like to continue the public discourse on global warming and climate change that we started a little bit, while, a little bit back. So, yeah, that's table set up in the Great Hall. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about Grace. Um, and I was just going to say, I'm going to start with a story about Grace, but then I was thinking about Grace and how, um, how unique it, I, think, I think it is to the human experience. Uh, that grace is one of the things that we so deeply long for and that we so acutely feel when we experience it. And how often uh, grace we, is something we find in unexpected places. Um, Dr. Eames has asked me if I would, um, in the near next couple of weeks, um, join his addictions class and share my personal story with the class. So I've been reflecting on that a little bit. And uh, as I did so, um, I, I started thinking about an instance in my past where found grace in an unexpected place. Um, and our passage this morning is a passage where we find an unexpected grace as well, but one that points to a much greater and deeper grace. Uh, but my grace um, doesn't start off like a very graceful story. Uh, sophomore year of college, uh, fall of my sophomore year, and I had uh, been at a party, and I was incredibly drunk. Um, I was the... Dry, I was the um, designated driver that day. So I uh, started driving back to our dormitory, um, and as we were driving to the dorm, I uh, got pulled over by a policeman. Not the beginning of, of a good, graceful story, but let me throw in a few extra pieces. Um, there were 11 people in my Honda Accord, um, one girl in the trunk, and let me tell you how and why I got pulled over. Because as we were driving up the two-way street behind my dorm, a hill, the car in front of me I deemed going too slow, I decided to pass going up, and it was the cop coming towards me in the other lane. So he whips around and comes up. Uh, we pull in front of the dorm, and ten people, nine people, pile out of my car. Mike stays in the passenger seat next to me, and Sharon is in the trunk, and we tell Sharon to be quiet. Um, <laughs> You can feel the grace oozing, right? Um, but the police officer walks up to the window. Um, I roll down the window. He says, license and registration, please. I give him both. And he kind of stands there and he looks at me. And he looks in the car. And then he walks back to his car. And at that point, I knew a few things. Here's what I knew. I knew that I was very drunk. I knew that he knew I was very drunk. And I knew that I was going to jail. I also knew that I deserved it. So we sit there for what seems like an eternity, and the police officer walks back, he hands me my license, and he says, Mr. Lowe, I don't know if you're drunk, and I don't want to know, but I want to tell you one thing. Anytime you get behind the wheel of a car, you take the life of every single person in that car into your hands. Have a good night. He turned around and he walked away. I don't remember much after that. I don't remember how the car got parked. Um, I don't remember what took place, but I'll never forget those words. He extended a grace to me that was just a mere foreshadowing 
of the deeper and greater grace that I would experience in just a couple of short months when I met Jesus Christ. But that grace set a foreshadowing of a future grace. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is going to set the foreshadowing of an even deeper and more beautiful uh, grace. So let's frame it just a little bit. King David is a fiercely loyal king to his God, Yahweh. Uh, He trusted him uh, with the situation with Goliath, with his relationships with Jonathan um, and Saul. And so after he had led the nation of Israel as a young king from the city of Hebron for seven years, um, he eventually takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and there begins to build it up and it becomes the capital of Israel, the nation and the people of God. And David desired to have the presence of their God, the presence of the living God in the midst of the people, in the heart of Jerusalem. So he sets off to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne seat of the living God, where the Shekinah glory would come down and rest and God would speak to his people, to bring it back to Jerusalem. So the king assembles his troops. They serve as a military escort for the Ark of God to be brought back to Jerusalem. And a crazy story of grace takes place. Would you please stand as we read 2 Samuel chapter 6? David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious God, thank you for your living word. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in it. And thank you for the grace that we see extended from creation uh, to consummation. Thank you for this story. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide the words that are spoken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela and Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, 
the name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So we want to know what the ark is, right? The ark of God, Exodus 25, God gives Moses directions to have a tabernacle built and to have an ark built. So the ark was literally a, a box made of acacia wood um, overlaid with gold, both, both inside and out. And there are specific directions given as to how this is to be made. There's to be an atonement cover that's put on top. And the atonement cover made of pure gold is to have these two cherubim, two angels whose wings come together and reach and touch in the middle. And that's where the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, will come and sit as his throne as he speaks to and directs the people. There are also to be four golden rings made that are attached to the feet of the ark. And there are two poles made of acacia wood that are covered in gold. And those poles are to be set through those rings that sit on the feet so that when the ark of God is moved, it is picked up and it's carried by the acacia poles. The acacia poles are to always stay inside the rings on the ark of the covenant. It is called the name because it was the throne of the Most High God, the creator of the universe, the living God who reached down, who breathed breath, into his image bearers. He was going to actually, in his Shekinah glory, come and be present there on the throne. So 30,000 men head off to get the ark and bring it home several miles from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem. And we get the story. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And you get a picture, and you, and you sense that this should be a joyous occasion. Something delightful and amazing is happening here. The Ark of God is being restored to the people of God in the capital of the people of God. But there are a few things here that should set off some alarm bells for us. The first is they set the, the Ark of God on a new cart as they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. If this were a movie, there would be that sense of foreboding. You'd start to see things maybe not quite right, and we know it. So we want to know, though, what is it that's not quite right? What's happening here? And the first question that we want to ask is, why isn't the ark with David in the first place? Why isn't the ark in Jerusalem? In 1 Samuel chapter 4, before David is ever anointed king, we find out that the Philistines have captured the ark. They capture the ark and they take it to the temple of their primary god, Dagon. So they take it to the temple of Dagon and they set it before Dagon. And, and over a course of a couple of days, the, temple, the, the statue of Dagon falls down prostrate before it. And then come and they set him back up, falls down again. This time his head falls off. This false god will bow down before the living god, even as his ark is there. So the Philistines then send the ark to different cities um, in Philistine country. And in every place that it goes, it wreaks unspeakable havoc on the people. Um, scripture talks about boils in nether regions, which never sounds pleasant. And the Philistines get to the point where they've had enough. So what do they do? They're going to send the cart back to the Israelites. So they put it on a cart that's pulled by two um, milk cows that have never been yoked, and they just send it away. And it ends up going back, and it goes to the house of Abinadab, who's a priest, where it's going to sit 
and it's going to wait for its restoration to the people of Israel. But when we hear here that the Israelites set the ark of God on a new cart, something's wrong. They're transporting it the same way that the Philistines transported the ark. They celebrate, and the celebration seems good and joyful, and this happy thing is happening. But verse 6 comes, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out, his, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died beside the ark of God. And without the full story, this is, this is a, an account of scripture that could seem like the most capricious act of God that you could imagine. Uzzah, who is going there beside the Ark of God on the way to Jerusalem to restore the Ark to the city of David. As he's going, the oxen hit a thing. It's tumbling, and Uzzah's simply going to reach out and stay it. A good thing, right? You don't want the Ark of God to fall onto the ground. It's reverent, it's right, it's good, and God strikes him dead. But to understand what's actually taking place here, we need to understand a little bit about Uzzah, a little bit about Ahio, a little bit about Abinadab, and a little bit about the commands that the Lord gave regarding the ark. In Numbers chapter 4, we have uh, a picture and a description of a group of Levites called the Kohathites. And the Kohathites were responsible for care of the holy articles inside the tabernacle of God. Let me read you just a little bit from Numbers chapter 4. This is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting. They are to care for the most holy things. And here's what's supposed to happen. When it's time for the tabernacle to move and the most holy things need to be moved, this is what takes place. Aaron and his sons first go into the tabernacle. And when they talk about the ark of God, here's what they do. They take down the separating curtain and they cover the ark with it. And then after they do that, they take a piece of heavy leather and they put the heavy leather over the curtain. And then after they've done that, they take a blue linen curtain and they put it over the leather so that there are three layers of covering over the Ark of God. The Kohathites then go in and they're told they are never to touch any of the holy items or God will strike them dead. They are to carry it only by the Asherah poles and it's covered with these, with the leather and the linen so that it won't be touched. It's very likely, Scripture doesn't ever say it explicitly, that Abinadab and his two sons, Ahio and Uzzah, are Kohathites. But it's most likely that they are the Kohathites, um, that they are the ones being entrusted to move the Ark of God. So when the Ark of God begins to fall and Uzzah reaches out and touches it, God striking him dead is not God being a capricious God. It's not God simply being um, unmerciful or unjust but it's God being very just. It's the holy ark of the living God being touched by the sinful hand of a human being who's been specifically commanded not to touch it. The judgment is right, and the judgment is good. But David is angry. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to, that, to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Very likely that David was not thinking about Numbers 4 and the Kohathite laws on the moving of the holy goods from the tabernacle. It appeared to him, I think, that the Lord was acting in a very capricious uh, way, perhaps unnecessary, perhaps harsh. Um, but 
he also was tempered with fear. And a right fear for the holiness of the living God. His right and natural reaction was that reverence and that fear. And he has a good question. If God is willing to strike Uzzah dead for this seemingly innocuous and maybe even um, unintended act, then how on earth can the ark of God ever come into the nation and into the capital where I will live knowing that I'm a sinful man? How can we survive in the presence of God if this is how God interacts with his people? Well, I started by saying that this was a story of grace, and it is. It's a story of unexpected grace. Um, The grace comes not necessarily in what God did, but in what God chose not to do. So when you read in Numbers chapter 4, you read about um, the Kohathites not touching the Ark of God. You read about the coverings that go over the Ark of God. But there's a piece here that I didn't read, and it gives us great and deep insight and appreciation for the mercy and the grace of God. When you come down to the end, so that they may live and not die when they come near the most, most holy things, do this for them. This is Aaron and his sons for the Kohathites. Aaron and his sons are to go into the sanctuary and assign to each man his work and what he is to carry. But the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. See, the Ark of God is being pulled on a cart. The Ark of God is not covered. Uzzah reaches out and touches it, and rightful judgment of God falls upon him. But what should have happened is that every man, woman, and child who set eyes on the Ark of God without it covered should have been struck dead. It was simply the grace and the mercy of the living God who chose not to do that, to withhold his judgment. But when a sinful hand actually touched the Ark, his wrath then burns. But this begins to point us forward. We're told that David wasn't willing to bring the ark into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So David does the right thing. Uh, We find out later that Obed-Edom is actually um, a Kohathite priest. So the ark goes there to rest. And I can't help but think that the reality of the situation is David doesn't want the ark in Jerusalem, right, because he doesn't know what's going to happen. So he gives it to Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a Kohathite priest, basically with the realistic expectation, let's put it there, see if his family members start to die. And if not, then maybe we'll come down and bring it up. We find out that the Lord did indeed bless Obed-Edom and his family. Uh, scripture says that he was blessed from generation to generation upon generation. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were, I hear this, this is so good, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Once again, a great sense of joy and celebration, but the sacrifices show a renewed sense of awe, a renewed sense of reverence and fear for the living God. This time, the ark of God is being carried. 
And if you were to guess what it looked like, what would you guess? It's being carried by the acacia poles. And it's covered. It's covered by leather. And it's covered by linen. And the gracious living God, the presence of God, is going to be taken back into the city of David. Now, the same way that the grace of that policeman uh, pointed to a greater grace that I would come to know very soon in meeting Jesus Christ, the mercy of God with the Israelites here points to an even greater grace. See, it was David's desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem and then to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple for the living God. But it was God's intention to build a house for David and to establish a throne that would live forever, for all of eternity. And in time, the king in the line of David would come. But the Ark of the Presence was gone, and it was actually no longer needed, because in this king, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who had once again come to live in the midst of his people. And in Luke 8, we find a story of another sinful person reaching out to touch This time, not the ark, not the throne of God, but this time the actual clothing of God. She was hoping to be healed from 12 years of bleeding. And when she touched him, Jesus turned, found out who it was, and he spoke to her. God the Son says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And then in the same chapter, there's a little girl, the daughter of a man named Jairus, who gets sick and dies. 12-year-old girl. And this time, instead of sinful man reaching his hand out, it's the living God who reaches his hand into the hand of this little girl and takes it. And he says, my child, get up. And she does. And she lives. But the greater grace was still to come. The greater grace comes when Jesus reaches out his hands on the cross and God reaches his hand down with judgment upon the sinless one who would take our place on the tree, who would pay the price for our sins that we could never pay and who would do so simply because he loved us. Buried, raised, ascended to the right hand of God, sending forth the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God, that we might be indwelt and that we might become the living temple of the Holy God. So the rejoicing that David and the Israelites um, experienced, the rejoicing that they demonstrated as the Ark of God went forth, celebrating with all their might the presence of the living God there, how much more should we be marked as people of rejoicing? Despite our circumstances, despite what's going on in the world, we are always to be people who rejoice and who rejoice in the Lord. Paul says it best, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Can you imagine if David could hear this? If David would have known exactly what was coming. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. We are to be rejoicing people because we know the peace of the living God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace that is extended through all of history and will extend uh, through all of what is left of history. We thank you, um, Holy Father, for loving us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, that he deigned to become one of us, that he might know us. He might know the things that we struggle with, that he knows our every temptation, and he loves us. Lord, please be with us. I pray that you would give us hearts that desire you above all else. I pray, Lord, that you would not let us rest unless we are resting in you. And I pray, Father, that we find all of our um, encouragement and all of our identity in you alone. We give you all praise and thanks in your mighty name. Amen.